Alright guys, we've all been there. It's client feedback time, you're sitting in the cozy confines of your edit suite, and then all of a sudden you're thrust into the messy world of rendering, encoding, uploading to Dropbox, and emailing the clients. It's crazy. That is until today. The Whipster review panel for Adobe Premiere Pro lets you send your edit to your clients without leaving Premiere. Whipster does all the encoding, uploading, sharing, and collating of feedback behind the scenes. Sit back and relax as the comments appear directly in your Premiere Pro timeline as markers. It's seamless, smooth, and speedy. It's a revolution in collaboration. To find out more and to install the review panel, head to whipster.com. So check it out. It's the Whipster review panel for Premiere Pro at whipster.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and today we have Julian Clark discussing Deadpool, which has been a smash hit. Now, one of the things I should give you a heads up about before we get into this, Julian was under the weather when I called, so thank you to him for, despite being sick and having a cough, being able to push through and allow us to interview him. So it, it means a lot to us. So thank you very much. Other than that, I also want to thank Whipster, our new sponsor, who's been helping us through this month of April. And they're going to have some great, amazing announcements at NAB. So make sure to check that out. With all that said, here's my interview with Julian Clark. But that's editing. The elimination of all but the essential. First, can you tell me how did you get onto this project? Kind of similar to how I've kind of gotten onto other projects. Deadpool was shooting in Vancouver, and Tim, the director, hadn't yet kind of hired anyone. And so, like, kind of, you know, as you do when you're kind of looking for people, you kind of ask the other kind of people you're kind of working with already, hey, you know, is there anyone that you want to recommend or, you know, that you think is good or whatever? So a whole bunch of people who are on that show were kind of, you know, part of the Blomkamp crew because he uses some of the better you know, best people in Vancouver. So my name kind of got thrown into the mix that way. So then I just kind of came down and met Tim and we hit it off. And so it just kind of happened like that. So do you still make Vancouver your home right now? Or because you, you said I tried you, to. Yeah, because you spent a year in LA. So well, yeah, it's, I mean, basically, I have a house here and I try to be spend as much time as I can here. And then when I work on the Blomkamp movies, he lives here too. And we usually post here. Oh, wow. So when I do a Blomkamp movie, then we sometimes shoot in Vancouver, or we shoot wherever and then we do the full post in Vancouver, including the mix and the DI and all that stuff. But then usually there's like a year of downtime after a Blomkamp movie. And then I'm kind of like, need another project and inevitably that project usually involves leaving town how much of the original short did you guys incorporate into this film did you go back to that script at all or what the happened with that? was very much like part of it was very much i guess an adaptation of I'm 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 speaking <laughs> I'm I'm guessing a little bit here because I was not around seven years ago when the script yeah. was written. It's you know there's a bit of it that's very similar to a sort of section of the script you know where he kind of drops in and does some similar dialogue and stuff like that. And then they did kind of like previs, which again kind of carried over that sort of same idea, but then kind of start developing it more. You know, I guess they kind of change some of the writing ideas as you do over seven years. And of course, like it's not a short, it's like a scene in the middle of a movie. But I think the idea kind of kept evolving. So I had kind of like previs that had kind of then come out that was a sort of a further iteration past the short that was definitely kind of a reference thing for some of the action. And then uh, 
comedy is so much kind of like what's funniest at the moment and what just kind of like feels right and works and feels funniest. And so that stuff, it's just kind of like the previs and the short are just kind of like not that helpful because it's just kind of like what do we have, what works. For the action stuff, it is quite useful, but for the comedy stuff, it just sort of becomes its own thing. Well, I was going to ask you about the comedy in terms of when he's wearing the suit, he's got a mask that's basically blocking his mouth. So I'm wondering, because that sort of lends itself to ad-libbing and altering the story in the post-process. So how did you use this, I guess, element of not being able to see his mouth to your advantage to mold the story? Absolutely. I mean, I think in all cases with editing, it's sort of like you use the ammunition that the movie gives you, you know? So the mask is like a great help in terms of like, if you want to change a line, you know, it's just eminently cheatable. So yeah, we did that quite a bit. A lot of the time it was just kind of like to, you know, try to make a joke funnier, changing a punchline, or sometimes, you know, something was a little bit too long and then you can kind of just sort of skip over a section because you can kind of just cheat a little in between section. And then of course the sort of odd situation comes up where it's like, Oh, this little bit of story could use, uh, you know, a little more clarification. And then rather than being in the awkward situation of having to do the sort of line behind someone's head, which everyone hates doing in a movie, and this you can actually put it on camera and then kind of reanimate his face to make it feel <laughs> like he's saying the stuff he didn't say. But, I mean, you know, that being said, it's not like half the lines in the movie are redubbed. Yeah. Like a huge amount of what we did in production is just kind of there because, you know, there's kind of a magic that you kind of get on set that is just sort of, it's very difficult to kind of regain an ADR and you just kind of don't really want to mess with it. So, you know, we obviously, it was a tool we used and, you know, we didn't use it infrequently, but uh, we tried to stick with as much production as we could. Well, and you see in the production, the back and forth between TJ Miller and, and Ryan Reynolds, and I heard that they ad-libbed a lot in their scenes together. So what were some of the challenges that this presented to you and how did you overcome them? Well, I mean, I think it's in those sorts of situations, it's just like an abundance of choice, you know, and like, it's all funny. Yeah. What's the most funny? And also sometimes something can be funny, but like, it feels kind of like it's just funny. It feels slightly kind of like dramatically unreal or not quite in character or something like that. And so then it's sort of like, oh, this is really funny, but it just slightly feels like just a funny line and less like in the emotion of the scene or whatever. And so then you have those sort of considerations as well. But there wasn't any kind of thing like where I was like, wow, this improv has really painted me into a corner, you know, because it's all kind of like quipping. It's never kind of like a they're improvising a new storyline or something like that or a new kind of idea for the scene. That's the stuff where you can really get yourself kind of in trouble, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, so it wasn't, it was more like the, you know, you were kind of paralyzed with options and less kind of like painting yourself into a corner with great new ideas that you haven't yeah. planned out. It's, it's less about the structure of the story, but they would have a joke or a one line that they would just repeat in takes. Yeah, or? it's more about their kind of banter, you know, the sort of flavor and fun and less about kind of like the specific plan of getting Ajax. Yeah. And the, the specific plan of getting Ajax is pretty simple, you know, it's so it's more about kind of their flavor and relationship. In one of the interviews I read that you had done, you had mentioned that you really like films with weird tones. Yeah. What is it about those projects and their challenges that attracts you? Well, I mean, I guess partly it's just like, I like, it's, you want to work on stuff that you would want to watch yourself. And definitely when I was kind of like one of those guys coming out of film school would watch like multiple movies a day and like watch a movie till like, you know, midnight to 2am or whatever with like friends or something like that. You know, I liked stuff that was kind of like, 
really coming out of the left field. You know, I watch like weird Japanese movies and like watch Peter Jackson's movies like Meet the Feebles and Dead Alive. And I just like crazy kind of cult movies that are like, just feel like something you hadn't seen before. And they kind of, I don't know, they just had a sort of interesting way of kind of encapsulating different genres and different tones. And so that was always kind of fun. And I felt like I was sort of seeing something I hadn't seen before. And I liked the kind of like, oh my God, I can't believe they did that in the movie kind of aspect to it. And then once, you know, I kind of felt like, you know, District 9 has a definitely an aspect of it to that. And sort of participated in making one of those movies where people are kind of going like, wow, I haven't really seen this before. And that's a fun feeling to kind of be involved in that. And I think it also goes back to movies I grew up on, like Paul Verhoeven films, like Robocop was like one of my favorite films growing up. And that is the quintessential kind of weird tone film where on the one hand, it's like kind of like quite sentimental and like moving with the story of he's lost his wife and he's been killed and he's on a mission for revenge. And then it has all this like super satirical, like 80s corporate America stuff mixed in and just over the top violence. And yet it works. And like it feels so audacious because of those different elements. So I think all that kind of stuff is just sort of in my brain. And so I appreciate how hard that is to do and how cool it is when it works. And so, yeah, I, that was definitely something when I read the Deadpool script, I was like, this will be really challenging and very cool having this sort of the extremity of the comedy and the extremity of the violence and the extremity of the kind of dramatic elements and trying to weave those together. You talked about these sort of extremes of the violence and the humor and what have you, and that constantly affects the tones in scenes and in the movie. So how did you approach working with these various tones uh, to prevent alienating the audience? I think uh, partly it's sort of having the right amount of each mm -hmm. and kind of knowing the right place to do each. So one thing I've kind of mentioned in other interviews is the workshop, for example, that is definitely the most sort of harrowing section for the audience, mm -hmm. but it's important that it be kind of harrowing because it's sort of the whole motivation for his kind of revenge arc. And, and it, it kind of gives this sort of real pathos to his origin story. But you know, the original kind of construction we had of it, it was several minutes longer. It had more scenes, it had more suffering. His fight against Ajax was sort of even more brutal mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> than just getting impaled. You know, he also got a, like his jaw stomped on and stuff. It was sort of like, it was very hardcore. And it was sort of interesting. And it was all like very well done and dramatic, right? Yeah. But when we played it for audiences, you could feel they were just traumatized <laughs> by that section. And we would get to a, like a quite funny scene and like no one was laughing. And you're just like, wow, we've just kind of, we've shaken them like too much, but they're not really able to recover back into the comedic tone. Wow. And so it was clear we need to kind of like rein this section in a little bit. We need to get just, just the right amount of trauma where you're kind of just pushing it, but like not kind of crossing the line into the point where they can't recover and get back into the comedy. Yeah. Uh, so that's, I guess, one example of that. And then on the flip side, with the comedy stuff, there was, there's basically, you know, we had sort of jokes all over the place in that movie. And sometimes we had jokes in sections where like something kind of serious was going on with the story, like Vanessa getting kidnapped. And then it was kind of like having a joke right after Vanessa getting kidnapped was just, this is wrong. We want the audience to take the Jeopardy, you know, seriously, because this is the sort of, again, the emotional core of the movie is his sort of relationship with Vanessa. So if you kind of like 
make light of it, then you're kind of you're kind of undermining the the emotional core of the movie. And so we kind of pruned the jokes in that section and kind of you know delayed them for like a minute or so to let you kind of sit in that situation before kind of getting back into the kind of funny stuff. Yeah. Well, and one of the problems with the humor might be that he breaks the fourth wall a lot and that could sort of absolutely yes how did you work with that type of humor where you're you're breaking the fourth wall and he's talking to us the audience and counting his bullets how did you work with that to make sure that the audience didn't get pulled out of the moment well i I think again it's sort of like picking the right places to do it you know he doesn't really break the fourth wall in the middle of like something like very serious usually usually it's in sort of the middle of it might be in the middle of action but it's kind of the middle of kind of more fun action rather than kind of like angry kind of I mean, the one place we do it, which is just hugging that, is sort of like maybe when he's rescuing Vanessa on the flight deck, where he kind yeah. of does the, like, good one. But even that, we've, it's sort of delayed. You know, we've kind of gotten back into banter mode with, like, Ajax kind of, you know, insulting him. And it's still slightly spaced out from the fact that, you know, Vanessa's in jeopardy. I think with stuff like the 12 Blood stuff, there's not that much sense of danger for Deadpool there. He sort of seems, like, invincible. So you're not really deflating that aspect of it. It was more an aspect of like, you don't, there's a sort of an excitement and a flow to it. And so if you had kind of too many fourth wall breaks there that you'd be creating an awkward rhythm. So it's more kind of just like finding the right kind of pause moment. But I don't know how much you're really kind of going like, oh, I hope he doesn't die. It's sort of, he just <laughs> sort of seems like he's kind of working those guys. Yeah. <laughs> I had heard you say before that you push scenes until their breaking point and then sort of reel it back in, in terms of the humor. Could you sort of explain what your process is with that? Like I said, there's a lot of jokes, and the jokes are very digressive often. And like with the fourth wall thing, kind of like, kind of stops in the scene. Mm-hmm. And so you would, we would have a lot of these things, and then you kind of feel like, well, this is maybe like a little too, uh, you know, lumpy of a flow. And then you take a whole bunch out and then you'd be like, oh, well, now this feels like too normal. It doesn't feel Deadpool anymore. And so yeah. it's kind of like finding that point where it was like just the right amount <clears throat> of like weirdness that the scene was like almost about to not work. <laughs> and that was kind of like the point where generally there was consensus that that was sort of the right amount right at the point where it was just about to kind of feel like you were kind of like derailing it with too much digressions. Now, this is an odd off-topic question, but did you guys go back and look at Ryan Reynolds' other films for the relationship between the female lead and Ryan Reynolds? Like his romance? In the Christmas scene or something yeah, like that? Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 mean, I don't think you have to. It's just kind of there. It <laughs> yeah. was so like, kind of like, it's funny that like, when you get to that Christmas scene, you're like, wow, this is sort of like a raunchy, R-rated version of like one of those scenes that are in like, you know, like a Sandrick Bullock or Ryan Reynolds movie or something like yeah. that. But yeah, there was like, you know, there wasn't like a need to like go back and like reference the cutting or something like that i think it was just he clearly was like i know how to do this right (laughs) (laughs) yeah and then of course your cutting is just naturally guided to like building all that chemistry and kind of looks and it's just sort of a different sort of set of priorities than maybe you would have in you know other scenes the film cuts back and forth between various scenes or various moments in the story so was there a lot of altering of the structure of the film you know not as much as you would think the script was written uh non-linearly and we tried a, a a linear version at one point just for the hell of it and it did not work linearly at all not at all uh, it was just 
the tone was just totally uncohesive. So it was clear that it needed to be nonlinear to work. So, but, you know, we didn't necessarily stick with exactly what was sort of dictated in the script about where you would kind of jump back and forth to. So there was a couple sort of things that changed through the course of editing. Originally, the kind of, the sort of Wade has cancer section was kind of a much longer section and had a, and had a whole kind of thing of after he says no to the recruiter, he goes on a trip to like Mexico and goes to this Mexican clinic where they have a sort of phony cure. So there was this sort of huge extra section and we kind of decided that, that we were kind of too long in that kind of part of the movie and so we took that out and so that kind of changed the kind of structure there. And then another thing that was sort of in the script was that uh, there was originally kind of a flashback in the middle of the workshop. And you could kind of see like why you would want to do that because you're like, well, the workshop's so long and dark, wouldn't it be nice to get a little break? You know, and it's like, yeah, sure, on paper, that's a good idea. But then in reality, you're like, wow, this doesn't work at all. Like going from the most serious part of the movie to kind of what actually turns out to be the most light part of the movie. And then you were just like, this is just like, these things don't mix. So there was kind of things got kind of like nudged around, but the whole kind of premise of it kind of being nonlinear, especially in the first half and kind of being framed with voiceover, that was all very much in the script. It was just sort of the specifics kind of got adjusted as we kind of, you know, felt it out how you know, it was going to need to work. Now, I have one last question that I usually ask everyone to interview, and that's, what's your favorite Guilty Pleasure film? But we've actually done an interview before, so I'm wondering if you could tell me what your favorite Paul Verhoeven film is, since you're a fan of his work. It's a toss-up between RoboCop and Starship Troopers. I have to go with RoboCop over Starship Troopers, because I think there's like a little bit of humanity to RoboCop. And I think maybe it was more, you know, it's more of an important film as far as science fiction. But yeah, Starship Troopers is like the sort of even more satirical, extreme yeah. uh, version. And it's sort of even more miraculous that it kind of works, though it doesn't work for everyone. Uh, that's a sort of a polarizing film. So I guess, yes, I'd say Robocop with close runner-up Starship Troopers. Well, thank you very much for allowing me to interview you again. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. So that was my interview with Julian. If you have any questions, you can always get us on Twitter. It's at AOTG Network. On Facebook, facebook.com slash AOTG Network. And of course, via email, info at AOTG Network. A big thank you to Whipster. They've got some amazing stuff coming out at NAB this year, so make sure to check that out. But with all that said... I want to say thanks to Julian Clark for allowing me to interview him, and thanks to the Canadian Cinema Editors for helping organize this. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.